I want to begin my talk this afternoon with a story that you may be familiar with about the Buddha's enlightenment, a story from, from that process. And there's a couple aspects of it that I want to highlight. There's a lot in the story, but I want to start with the fact that he, as we understand it, he spent many, many years, like six years, practicing austerities, meaning not eating. In fact, he was purported to have lived on one grain of rice a day and that he could reach in, he said, and touch his spine when he reached into his belly. And staying up all, you know, never sleeping, never laying down, that sort of extreme behavior. And while he was doing this, he was with um, five friends, five other ascetics who were pursuing this path with him. Interesting that it was, you know, it was extreme, but it, there was still Sangha. And he was going along with this, and he had this memory of a time when he was young, as a boy, sitting above the fields at his father where he grew up, and looking out over the fields, and he had this flash of memory of this amazing contentment, this ease, and the insight came to him, I think I'm barking up the wrong tree. I need to do this a little differently. Back then, when I was 11 or 12, there was something I understood. And that's the first piece of the story that I want you to take um, notice, is that sometimes we come to the path and there is some kind of knowing, some recollection of a peace or contentment that is possible for us. And there may be a specific moment, like the Buddha was purported to have remembered, or it might just be um, less specific than that. But so he remembered this, and he decided, oh, you know, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna give this. A, I'm gonna try this a different way. And he went and went the next time a, a woman at a well offered him nourishment. She offered him rice porridge, very deluxe meal. Um, and he accepted it and he ate it and he was nourished. And as the story goes, his five friends said, Oh my God, he's fallen off the path. He's going off into luxury. He's had rice and milk and 
he, he, he's no hope for him. We're, we're going off and doing our thing. You're on your own guy. So that's something else. The second piece I want you to notice is right in there. There was a moment where he, um, how do you want to say? There was a sense of relaxation and self allowed himself to be nourished, a kind of relaxation. And there was this perhaps real, perhaps metaphorical judgment and criticism from outside that this wasn't okay, that this relaxing and accepting nourishment wasn't going to get him where he wanted to go. But he was okay with that. And he went off and he um, began his practice in a different way, in a more relaxed, open, present and mindful but without the striving and the pushing. And he came, at one point he did sit down and say, I'm going to stay here till I get enlightened. Sounds a little strivy to me, but there he did it. And he, but maybe at that point, if you know it's right there, you have that option. So he sits through the night, and many things happen through the night. A lot of deep insight and understanding into impermanence and karma and the uh, arising of dependent origination. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. Um, and then there is a penultimate moment. And he has seen clearly the nature of many things. And Mara, Mara is the, Mara comes to him and Mara is the representation, you could say, of our, everything that distracts us, that pulls us back into greed and aversion and delusion. And it, by this point in the night, Mara had already tried to attract him with all sorts of, with his lovely daughters and had tried to attack him with uh, spears and arrows. And apparently as they came, they just fell as flowers around him. So Mara had tried like greed, aversion and pushing at him and none of that had worked. So the penultimate thing was that Mara is purported to have said to him, what right do you think you have to become enlightened? Kind of like, who do you think you are to do this? So the penultimate moment before enlightenment is this moment of doubt, of self-doubt, embodied in this person, in this Mara coming to him. But it's like, who are you? And his response 
is so simple and so beautiful. And we see this in most statues, not in this one, but in most Buddha statues, he reaches down and he touches the earth. And that's the mudra that we usually see in Buddha statues. He doesn't say anything, just touches the earth. And it is in that moment, in that motion, that he becomes fully enlightened. So what is he doing when he touches the earth? One way of understanding that is he's saying, just as the earth is here, just as I am connected to the earth, the inherent potential and right to awaken is here in me. It's not something I have to justify, prove, explain. It's right here in me, as in this earth, as part of this earth. We are this living, traveling embodiment of the earth, moving around. And this potential is here in us, and yet we have this ongoing tendency to doubt ourselves. The critical voice that comes to us from outside, from inside, the self-critic, the other critic. And this is what I want to speak to, this judging, this critic of ours. And many of us have it, and it's one of the strongest voices we have, that we're not good enough. that somehow the way we're doing it isn't okay. And I think it's one of the biggest impediments on our journey. It holds us back. And we can recognize it so easily. It's harsh. It's devaluing. It says we're not enough that we're not worthy. And another story from the Buddha's time that helps, you might want to say, well, yeah, that was the Buddha, but what about me? I'm not actually, you know, he might have been worthy, but not me. And so many of you may know the story of Angulimala, who was purported to, he was actually a fairly um, 
advanced practitioner, but he had a run-in with his teacher, not with the Buddha, but with another teacher, and he um, basically turned to the angry and to the black arts, and he decided, and he became a murderer, and he started killing people with the intention of killing. It's a thousand people, and Angulimala actually stands for um, the. It's a mala of fingers. Supposedly, after each person he killed, he took their finger. It's pretty gruesome. Um, so he decided he'd killed all that he was going to kill one more person. He decided the person he wanted to kill was the Buddha. And he started, he found the Buddha and he went after the Buddha and the Buddha, no matter how fast he went, he couldn't reach the Buddha. The Buddha kept walking and he just couldn't get any closer. And finally Angulimala yells, stop. And the Buddha turns and goes, you stop. And apparently the clarity with which the Buddha said, you stop, cut through the delusion. And he saw what he was doing. So the important thing about this story is that after that he became a disciple of the Buddha and he became fully enlightened. He became an Arhant. Somebody who killed all those people could become an Arhant? Isn't that remarkable? Because in that there's, there's a comment that the behavior that he was doing was by no means okay. But underneath, there was still this potential. That all that, all those mistakes that he had made did not take away that basic possibility in him of waking up. Now, after he was enlightened, he would go down to the village for alms round and the villagers would throw stones at him because he'd killed people. And Angulimala would come back and complain to the Buddha, they're throwing stones at me. And the Buddha said, that's your karma, you know? Yes, you're fully awake, but you did some things that were very harmful and they're going to play themselves out. But the basic purity, the possibility of waking up had not been altered, had not been diminished. So this distinction is a really important one that we can make mistakes, that we can be imperfect, and I'll come back to that. And there may be repercussions. There may be, we make mistakes and sometimes we make a mess, right? And then we have to clean it up. 
or others have to clean it up, or we just have to wait till it lives itself out. But our underlying potential, our underlying goodness has not been diminished by the actions. But this voice, this judge, this self-critic in us confuses these two. It says, because you haven't done something the way I think you should, you are a bad person. And so I want to spend some time talking about this distinction between what the, is this judge, what is this self-critical voice, and what is the truth of the way things are. One definition of this self-critic, this judge from Eugene Cash that I like, it tells you what to experience, how to experience it, what your experience means, and what you need to do about it. Pretty well sum it up. It's got an opinion about everything, right? And with that many opinions, it's going to be pretty hard to get it right. We're kind of off on a, we're off to a bad start. But one thing that's worthy acknowledging about this judge is that it has a, it has an old um, function. Um, another way of think, talking about it is the superego. It has a function of kind of holding everything together. It's kind of trying to keep us in line, keep things organized, thinks that this is how we need to do it to be okay. And we develop this when we're young. You know, it's like, and it, it, it's, um, it, we develop it by incorporating external voices into ourselves. When we're running around as a kid, we think we're fine for some period of time. And then somebody tells us, no, that's not okay. You are having a good time there and it's not okay for you to be having a good time. Oh, you didn't do this and you should have. You need to sit in your chair. You need to clean this up. You, and it's part of so, being socialized. You know, it, it's a tricky thing. It's not that developing a super ego is somehow a way that our parents failed us or something went wrong. It is part of the process of coming into socialization. But what happens is we get stuck there. And what I'm pointing to is that it's a stage and staying there for our whole lives is not a useful way to live. But it comes in and it tells us, you know, when we're in second grade that we have to stay in our chair and that if we get up, we're going to get in trouble. You know, whatever. So it maintains, its job is to maintain the status quo, to keep things familiar, to keep our sense of self and of who we are and that this is how we should be. It also has the job of keeping us away from anything that it thinks might be dangerous. 
any way that we might get hurt. So it has a purpose there too. You know, don't do that. Somebody will get mad at you. And that'll be uncomfortable. So it's a manager. It's managing everything. It's a, when you think about it, it's a pretty, can you feel the complexity of the job of like, you know, trying to watch out for everything and keep you in line and make sure everybody else and when they're doing something wrong, you can go out and criticize them for a while and then come back in here. It's a full-time job. Unfortunately, it also leads to us the uh, the it's got its job, but then in there there's the rest of us feeling criticized, feeling small, feeling contained, not getting to express itself, not the joy that is there maybe getting pushed down. It's especially good, this judge, at um, holding down uh, unfamiliar experiences of emotion. We talked about emotion a little bit earlier. But if, for instance, it was not okay in our family to be angry, then one of the jobs of the superego of the judge will be to make sure we don't get angry. If one of the things that wasn't okay in our family, in our experience of our family, it's not necessarily a family, it's our experience, we don't, um, was joy, then the superego will come in and ha- we start to be joyful and I'll say, what are you doing? You know, you've got important things to tend to because it, it needs to manage that. One way of thinking of it is that there's a, some of you have seen me have this example before, is that it's like we have a bandwidth in which that's familiar. And we move along in this bandwidth. And whenever we start to bump up against the top or bottom of this bandwidth, it's like, stay in there. This is familiar. This is what I know. Don't go outside of here. And those that floor and ceiling tend to be, uh, in different aspects of our lives, can be quite harsh, can be quite solid. And part of what we're doing in practice is bumping up against those edges and discovering that it's okay and that the whole world doesn't fall apart. So a really simple aspect of that is you sit here and you're uncomfortable during a sit and you want the bell to ring. You are in that moment bumping up against an edge. And when you bump up against that edge, part of what the opportunity there is to go, oh, This is what it's like to be in a situation that's uncomfortable. Can I be okay being uncomfortable here? Or an emotion comes up while you're sitting and 
it's not the way you think it should be. You're not having the quiet sit that you thought you were going to have. Can you have the experience that isn't the one that you're expecting, planning for, wanting? And can you be okay with that? So a lot of what we're doing is expanding our capacity to be with the unplanned, the uh, what feels uncontrolled to us. This this one thing that's re- important to remember in this is that the ego this this super ego element is not a constant it's not a solid in us it's a verb it's an activity that comes and goes just like the ego it comes and goes so it's not like there's something there that you have to fix or destroy or stop. It's just something that comes and goes. And what we're moving towards is recognizing it, recognizing the way it puts a lid on us, the way it has an opinion. It can be quite useful when we experience these judgments to notice that underneath there's often a little something we think is true. There's a little, there's a little snippet of belief or truth there, but then we make a big thing out of it. You know, for instance, to take a very mundane one, you're sitting here and you want and some part of your body becomes uncomfortable and you want to move. Now the truth is some part of your body is uncomfortable and you want to move. Okay, that, that, that's true. We know that in meditation, the body being still is very helpful for allowing the mind to settle. The stillness in the body allows there to be stillness in the mind. Okay, so that's true. Having a certain amount of stillness is useful. But then you're really uncomfortable and you decide you need to move. And because that's all that you're thinking about and there's something there. So you move and now you have the opportunity to be still again. Now that could be the end of it, or it might not be. You might decide at that point that your body isn't designed for sitting, that you're a bad meditator, that you should have done something else this weekend, Um, you're never going to get it right, whatever your version is. So can you see how we take just a simple piece of information that is quite useful? Yes, it is useful to sit still. So there's the little nugget of truth in the midst. But then we've taken that little nugget of truth 
and made it into a whole story when we don't do it about how we're a failure in some way or how we should, we're not doing it right. You know, just that little tiny thing. And our lives are full of these, where there is something that's true, you know, it might be that this is useful as a general rule, you know, this might be a way to do it. And then you go, but I'm not going to do it that way. And, oh my God, the explosion inside, right? There, I was in, um, years ago, I was uh, traveling with a friend in India and I loved it. One of her um, ways of responding to a situation when it was like, oh, we should do this. Oh, I don't know. She would say, and who made that rule? And who made that rule? And it was a great way of like checking and going, who made that rule? Was it your great-great-grandmother made that rule and passed it to your grandmother and passed it to your mother and now you've got to keep going with that rule? Who made that rule? You don't need to figure that all out, but just notice in the moment, it may not really have any substance to it. The, the, this self-critic, and you can feel how, in the way I'm talking about, this self-critic and judge is often oversimplified and quite young in its view. There's a real sense of black and white about it rather than an understanding of the complexity of life and situations and that there isn't a right response. That's often one way we can recognize this judge is that this self-critic is it's black and white. You're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. And we know that's not true. But that's, that's how it shows up. One of the reasons that we often hang on to this critic is that we have the idea if this, this self-critic wasn't there, that we would run rampant, <laughs> that we would do nothing right, destroy the world, not do the dishes, not do the laundry, not go to work, everything else would somehow fall apart. Can you feel, I mean, it's like, that's what's keeping it in control. There is another quality, discernment, which does not have the, the judging voice, but sees things how they are, sees the truth of it. Very simple, sees that if you use dishes and you don't wash them, you will run out of dishes and you will have a lot of ants. You know, there's not, you don't really need to go any further with that. That's it, you know? And if you didn't do the dishes before you went to bed, it's okay. They'll be there in the morning when you get up or whatever it may be. So, but this quality of discernment 
there's a way that until we that we want to we tend to not trust it and so part of our practice and part of the experiment of practice is to see how things are and give it a try trust it for just a moment say okay hold on i want to get i want to see if there's actually a response here that is appropriate that doesn't need this extra edge to it you know to use the example of our sitting you can get up from a sit and say oh well that was a really bad sit i don't do any good at this da 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 da, da. or you could go hmm i wasn't very focused in that sit there wasn't i it felt like i was spaced out a lot i'm wondering if there's something that would be helpful in my practice to, that would help me be more focused and more present in my next sit. That sounds like a useful question, right? But you don't need to throw out the observation that I wasn't very focused, I wasn't very present. And in this, you may also hear that there's a forgiveness, a gentleness about this. In thinking about this topic and this talk, I was thinking about there's behind, uh, behind our house, there's a uh, cottonwood tree. And it was... Um, it had kind of a rough start in life. It was planted somewhere and then that place got all, everything got taken out of it. And so this cottonwood tree got dug out with a tree spade and then it was planted in my backyard. And then there's the added thing that my backyard where I live, it's uh, extremely salty. The, the soil is, has a very low, um, very basic pH and lots of salt. So it's also not a very good condition. And I live in Moab, it's the desert. It's a cottonwood tree. Um, so this cottonwood tree did almost nothing for about six years. It didn't, I don't know if it grew an inch. And along the way, I could watch myself get frustrated at the cottonwood tree. You know? <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, think about that poor cottonwood tree. It got planted somewhere, it got moved, it got put in this salt place, it probably wasn't getting enough water. It was doing the best it could. At least it was still alive. No. So what did it need? It needed time, it needed patience, it needed more water. It recently started growing for no obvious reason. We each have a history. We have things that 
from our whole lives, from our childhood, from what happened. We got moved, we got put in a salty place, we didn't get enough water, who knows what it was. But we don't, bl- it doesn't help to blame us for these things. It's like, oh, need some patience, maybe add some water. What do you need to do to, maybe a little fertilizer would be good. But we don't punish. We don't, it's not helpful to criticize ourselves or the cottonwood tree. There's a nice uh, little quote from Ajahn Chah called The Simple Path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the dharmas will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple. No need for long explanations. Give up clinging to love and hate. Just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing. Resist nothing. And in a way, that's what this path is inviting, that dropping of all those ideas about what we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. Spend a few minutes seeing some things about working directly with the judge, with this self-critic as it comes up in your experience. First, you're probably, as I'm talking, you're recognizing it. Another way that I haven't mentioned that you might recognize it is should. The word should or ought. I should do this. I should do that. I ought to do that. That's a very strong hint that there is, that that uh, super ego is present. And one of the things that is very tricky with the judge, but is very helpful, is to step out of the discussion. It's really hard to argue with this self-critic. It's got its story all lined up. It's way more useful to simply notice that it's arising. Oh, there's that critical voice. Hmm. 
okay, what is really true in this moment? Is there something I need to pay attention to or not? Rather than engaging in, yes, I am a good person, right? You've been trying that for a long time, right? Yes, I am a good person. I'm okay. You know, and you're sort of like, it's like you are, you don't need, you don't need to get involved in that, but just, oh, there's that self-critical voice. Okay. What is actually here? What is really true? Rely on your mindfulness. That this is the mindfulness is giving you this opportunity to see the self-critic arise without jumping on board. The first and most important thing, see that it's happening. And that may be enough. Sometimes that's enough to just clearly see it may be enough. And then an aspect of that is to acknowledge that it's happening, that it's not your fault that the critic, either the self-critic or the other critic is arising, that it's part of your history. It's got, it had its purpose. It's here. Not your fault. Recognize that there's this attack going on, this sort of self-critical attack, but don't become the attacker. In other words, don't jump on board and add ammunition. Recognize it's there and let it be. And as I was talking about before, it's really helpful when one way to talk about it is it had a purpose, right? So it can be helpful to recognize as a loyal soldier, you know, it fought your battle for you, it took care of you and go, yes, thank you. I know it's not a good idea when I'm in second grade to fidget in my chair and the war is over. I can make these decisions. So thanks for your help, but I'm okay now. And if it has, sometimes it can be helpful. I mentioned this in this discernment and this checking it out. Check and see if it's even true. Sometimes it's not even true. It's an idea. And one of the ways you can check this out is if somebody, if your good friend was sitting next to you and they did what you did or whatever, and they had this thought, would you say, well, yeah, you know, but there's a way to work with that or something. Or would you go, huh? What are you saying? You know, you know, you can think about that. Sometimes you think, oh, I should have done such and such. And you think, you know, your friend, you would have gone, you didn't need to do anything other than you did. It's fine. So sometimes just stepping out of yourself and checking, is it really even true? can be very helpful.
why is this judgment happening now? That's another aspect. What is making it come up? Is there some way that you're bumping up against that ceiling or floor? Some way that you're bumping into something that's uncomfortable, an emotion, an experience, a possibility that is unfamiliar. That can be really, um, that can be a place that this judgment comes in to make you small. So it's good to recognize if that's happening, go, oh yeah. You know, I think of, uh, you know, people say that you know, when people list their fears, their biggest fear above death is public speaking, right? So what's happening in public speaking that is so absolutely frightening? Well, you haven't done it, and there's this ink. I think that's a place where the self-critic actually runs rampant in all of us. And it takes time to say, it's okay, you know? Not that you all need to take up public speaking if you don't, but if any of you who have spoken in front of a group know this feeling, probably. It's helpful to be compassionate. It's helpful to be kind. To be kind to ourselves. The simplest way to do this is to change the way your internal tone of voice to yourself. So you're busy there having a little self-criticism fest and you, and you notice it and you go, Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Seems like maybe I've made a mistake. But I'm not sure. I wonder what I need to do. Is there something I need to check out here? And you can hear as soon as you change the tone of voice, there's compassion, there's caring, there's the possibility of seeing clearly and tending to yourself in the situation. Use your tone of voice a lot and consciously change it if you can. And then I want to get to that piece about we do make mistakes. Okay? We make mistakes. Imperfection. It's an imperfect world and we are part of it. We have all these causes and conditions from our past, all these conflicting ideas in us. We're going to make mistakes. It's okay. We make mistakes. And the diff, really important difference, and this is where our uh, Protestant, Christian, Catholic especially, uh, collective background comes into play, is that when we make a mistake, we go to guilt. And what guilt is, is interprets our self-worth in terms of that behavior. I made this mistake, so I'm a bad person. Remorse is to say, I made a mistake and I'm sorry about that mistake. 
but it doesn't define who you are. So it's a very important distinction because mistakes are useful. How do we learn things? We make mistakes and we recognize them. Very, very useful. There's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And yeah, sometimes they're worse than others and they do cause harm. So to say there's nothing wrong with them is a little bit over the top, but you know, they happen and we do the best we can. And if we can, seeing that there are mistakes that cause harm, right, that we may need to do some repair work for, and then there's a lot of foibles and neuroses and things we do that don't actually cause harm. They're just the way life's living through us at the moment. They're the imperfection. If every one of us was an autotron perfection, it would be a really boring and uninteresting world. And our personality, our aliveness, that all of that is like, it's all tied up together. We don't get to have this individual expression without having these different foibles, these different ways that we express ourselves. There's a quality of wabi-sabi that is a Japanese concept, which I like. It's great. Here's a quote talking about it. Greatness exists in the inconspicuous and the overlooked details. Wabi-sabi represents the exact opposite of the Western ideal of great beauty as something monumental, spectacular, and enduring. Wabi-sabi is not found in nature at moments of bloom and lushness, but at moments of inception or subsiding. Wabi-sabi is not about gorgeous flowers, majestic trees, or bold landscapes. Wabi-sabi is about the minor and the hidden, the tentative and the ephemeral. Things too so subtle and effervescent, they are invisible to vulgar eyes. Wabi-sabi is an appreciation of the imperfection. There's a wonderful uh, tradition in um, Japanese uh, teacups that if a cup is broken, sometimes it's put back together with gold binding it together along the cracks as a celebration, an acknowledgement of the cracks. And now it's back together. But the crack becomes part of it. We are all so full of all the places that we crack and morph Paraphrase Leonard Cohen, when the crack, the crack is how the light gets in. Our imperfections are the beauty. And then one other piece that I want to mention last one, it's going to be dinner time, is humor. Humor is super helpful 
in working with the judge. Yeah, you're, you know, you might get up from one sit and go as many people have. I am absolutely the worst meditator. I'm going to see what it's like to go through a weekend retreat being the worst meditator. Okay. Now that's taken care of. What is there left to worry about? You know? Could be in many other ways that. You know? It's okay. Just, you know, the celebration of it. Laughing at yourself. want to end with uh, first uh, reminding some of you may have seen the movie um, it was called it, The Help was the movie and there was this beautiful moment in the movie where the nanny is leaving I just love this And she's telling the little girl who's being, you know, indoctrinated into this bigoted, uh, suppressed system. And she goes tell, which is, you can, and is dominated by that judge, right? By that critic. It's really a story about that critic and the role it can play in a culture. And this nanny very wisely says to the young girl um, undercutting that critic she says I can barely say it um, you beautiful you smart you important I think a lot of times we need to keep reminding ourselves that you beautiful, you smart, you important. So I'm going to end with a poem from Derek Welcott called Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, And each will smile at the other's welcome. And I say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. All your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart, take down the love letters from the bookshelf the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So let's sit for a minute and let the words fall away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.